Everyone, hi, hello. It is me, Allison Rosen, and I'm sitting here in Dining Room Studios with comedy legend Spike Ferriston. That means I'm old. No, it just means you've accomplished a lot. Uh, some things, but thank you. It's nice to be here. You, you have are... great air conditioning. Thank you very much. It's colder than the Starbucks I was just in. Oh, that makes me feel well good. Well done. You should feel good about it on a day like today. Regular listeners of the show know that I have not always had great air conditioning. It went right. out for a whole week. Really? Which doesn't seem like that much, but it was the longest week of my life. It was during the heat wave. I am pregnant. Um, and I wanted to die. Wow, it was that's awful. Hard. That's hard. Yeah. That's really hard. Thank you. Well, it's nice now. Yeah. I could put, nice. put some meat on the table and it would not spoil for days in here. <laughs> we should just try it. What kind of meat should we try it with? What would be the best meat for skirt this Skirt steak, test? I think. Okay. I think I'd go for grass-fed skirt steak. Something without preservatives. <laughs> really test <laughs> right. how cool it is. Perfect. Mm-hmm. Let's do that. So now, when I called you a comedy legend, you said that means you're old. And it <laughs> occurred to me, I actually really don't know how old you are. You have one of those faces. I have a youthful face. Yes. And like, I've been you, around for a while. You come across, though, you're sort of ageless. I am ageless. I'm I have gonna, a good energy. Go ahead. You do have a youthful energy. Your Thank aura, you. it's so young. Um, but God, I was going to guess. I've multiple lifetimes <laughs> in different cities with different identities. You you were Michael Donovan at one point? Yes. Now you're Spike? I was Vinny Sanchez in high school. I was uh, the, the pine weasel when I was a bar back at um, uh, this bar in um, Boston. I've had many, many nicknames, all of them kind of weaselly and muskratty. What do you what do you make of that? That's why I think what my face looks like. I think that's why you know you don't pick your nicknames. No, no they pick people you. people pick. Yeah, they give them to you, and usually there's it's derogatory. Spike <laughs> was based on a hair lick at Saturday Night Live. My hair mm-hmm. used to stick up, so they said to call you Spike, and he said just don't fire me. Before that, were you Mike or were you Michael or were you Donovan or were you Don? I was never Donovan okay. ever. That's no. your middle name. I was though, Michael. Right? Well, it's Catholic family. We're all named after saints. St. Michael, St. Christopher, St. Mm-hmm. Elizabeth. That's the way it went in my family. Yeah, yeah. So you were Michael for most of your life? Kind of. Little Mike. My dad's name was Mike. So gotcha. He was Big Mike. I was Little Mike. It started early. I don't think I've ever really been Michael. But if you'd like, you could call me Michael for this podcast. <laughs> Even I, like, though. <laughs> I like Pine Weasel myself. <laughs> That's the one that really jumped I out to really me. I really enjoyed that nickname. I thought that was a cool nickname. How did that happen? Um, there was a bartender at, uh, the bar I worked at. It was, uh, in Faneuil Hall. I can't remember the name of the place, but it was near the Hands. And there was a bartender that gave all of the barbacks their nickname. So on the first day I was br- brought before him and he looked at me and he said, Pine Weasel. And that was my <laughs> name. And all the barbacks had nicknames. Now, was this when, cause I know that you, you grew up in Massachusetts. Yep. Um, and then you went to Berkeley School of Music. Right. And then you got kicked out. And I didn't get in- kicked out. No. Okay. I oh. got kicked out of the dorms because uh, first I was on the housing committee of the dorms, but but there was an incident where I was throwing light bulbs out a window pretty drunk and, you know, they just kicked me out of the dorms. Okay. But not but, out of the school. No, no, not at all. No, they just said you can't live in our housing anymore. <laughs> so where'd you go? <laughs> I got an apartment with some friends at BU and had a much better time, but it was... Uh, 
you know, eye-opening, and I've told the story before because I saw David Letterman throwing light bulbs off a tower, and I, and I, I got this guy's on network television. You know, maybe maybe that's uh, it was a real beacon to me. Like mm-hmm. this is where I belong, being silly and getting paid for it, right? Rather Be- than getting kicked out of dorms. Before that, the dream was music, though. Yeah, yeah. It goes a little like something like this: nerdy kid in high school, small, getting beat up, picks up guitar and plays, and finds suddenly he's very popular. In fact, so popular by the senior year that he's be- a date with him is being auctioned off. Even though I in, had a hot girlfriend. In what setting is a date being auctioned off? Just a date with me because I'm right. But like, was it like the Kiwanis Club or no? No, the kids in the school did it. <laughs> oh my god! On the, uh, some kind of on their own vigilante anti-off-the-cuff auction? Yes, like we can make money. It was for, I, I think my friend Scuzz, my best friend's name was Scuzz, thought if we pull this off, we'll have enough money for a keg party out in the woods. We used to have keg parties in the woods. Okay. And if we make enough money off this auction, which we did, we, we made quickly made 300 bucks, we'll, we'll have enough money to buy three kegs of beer and fireworks and, you know. Did you go out with the girl? Fire. Oh, it got shut down. It got shut down by the city. It was a completely unlicensed raffle. <laughs> this the is small. city was involved? <laughs> the city learned of this. By How the, small by was the this post- town? It's a very small town. Okay. I, I think 9,000 people in West Bridgewater, Massachusetts, even though it's good close proximity to Boston. It's 30 miles south of Boston. Does so. it seem like West Bridgewater has one too many names? This was... Uh, no. Like, I feel like it should be Bridgewater. Oh, is there also a Bridgewater there's a, and there's, there's a West? Bridgewater, okay. East Bridgewater, North Bridgewater is technically Brockton. I couldn't take it back any more than I right. do right now. But this was the, uh, what was the dance movie? Was it, it wasn't Flashdance. What was the one where you, there, they banned dancing with Kevin Bacon? Footloose. Footloose. This was the Footloose incident <laughs> of my upbringing where they said, you cannot auction off that kid a, a date with him, which was a, a great relief to my girlfriend. But, um, you know... By the way, I think we kept the money. I, th- I think we had the party. From that experience, right? From a, a ninth grader getting kind of beat up, mm-hmm. and not really beat up and punched and bloodied, but, you know, books down the stairs and bullied and intimidated, to that moment, I thought, well, I'll just continue this in Boston, mm-hmm. right? I'll go to music school, and now I'll, you know, I'll shock the... We'll have raffles around the world and many <laughs> kegs of beer. But when I, when I, what I really wanted was that quintessential college experience and i remember going in that first day at berkeley it was just all dudes like mm-hmm. me from small towns who i'm sure were involved in raffles <laughs> and everybody shedding and there are no girls and i'm like big very big mistake and i you know i got i was really intimidated it was very insecure and you know i you know i just hid i hid for two or three years just going this was a big mistake and i'm not going to tell anybody what a mistake it was a big mistake Socially? I no, I made a big uh, higher education mistake, right? And I'm not gonna let let on about it. I didn't trust my parents with that information. <laughs> I certainly didn't trust my friends. Like, well, had your parents and friends tried to suggest that you go somewhere else? No, no, not at all. No, there wasn't much thinking put with me. I was kind of the kid that my parents wrote off. Were you the last one? <laughs> no, I was the first one. Really? Yes. So I am little the hero. Michael was first. I'm the hero child in the hero position, yet I was so much trouble, I think, to them growing up, questioning. You know, they were just like, well, we'll get that second kid in college. Don't worry about him. <laughs> and the third. And, you know, they later told me, you know, we kind of wrote you off, Michael. We kind of thought <laughs> you're marching to the beat of your own drum and we can't help you. What were you like as a kid? Uh, you know, a big fan of comedy. Huge fan of comedy, thanks to my dad. But always, uh, you know, it's it's offset. 
we weren't really watched as kids. Mm-hmm. You know, I was let out in the morning in summer vacation and I would come back maybe at seven o'clock. So we got into a lot of trouble. Um, I burned my backyard down once. How? <laughs> I liked to play with fire when I was a kid. <laughs> How? Jimmy Lenahan and I climbed this really tall evergreen tree in my backyard and then tied a rope to it and uh, came down and my mom <laughs> called us in to lunch and and I said to Jim, I go, you know, before we go into lunch, shouldn't we light that rope on fire? And he went, yep. And, you know, he lit the rope and it, you know, went up and we ran inside. My mom said, go wash your hands. We washed our hands and I went up to the second floor and I said, we better check on that rope. And I looked in the backyard and my neighborhood was on fire. All of the trees around the neighborhood were on fire. Wow. Yeah. It sounds majestic and also yes. terrifying. Yes. And, um, but I was really a creative liar because when the firemen came and everybody had seen us playing in the backyard, I was able to convince everybody but the fire chief that a kid in a, in a brown jacket did it. It <laughs> <laughs> was a kid in a brown jacket. This this bad kid from the neighborhood, Brian Tangway, who wore a brown jacket. Oh, you pinned it on a specific kid. But he wasn't there. But I knew of this kid and I knew uh, what everybody kind of thought of him. And I said, it was a kid in a brown jacket. I'm not sure who it was, but I knew full well who it was. Um, and... That, I remember my it was mo- you? It was me. No, it was me and it was Jimmy Lenahan. We did it. And um, I remember uh, the fire chief going, uh, my mom come up to me. She goes, you know, the fire chief doesn't believe you, Michael. He thinks you're lying. But if you tell me. Oh, no. Yeah. You tell me you didn't do it. I'm going to stick up for you. I go, I totally didn't do it, Mom. I just did not do it. And she said, my son would not lie. He did not do it. You know, great Catholic mom. But But I had done it. And then an hour later, she says, let's all go to Kmart, which is, you know, that's what we did for fun. Mm-hmm. That's what you did in my town for fun. You go to Kmart. And as we're driving down the road, there's Brian Tangway walking. With in, his brown jacket? With his brown jacket. Oh and God. I can see my mom lock on to him. And she goes... <laughs> Is that him? <laughs> I said, nope. <laughs> Different brown jacket. Oh, good. <laughs> yeah. That's smart. I like Brian Tangway. He's a good kid. Did what, Was there any fallout for Brian Tangway ever, do you think? No. This was a pattern in my life. I was that kind of kid. I mean, most of my vandalism was inspired and funny, but occasionally I would shoot a TV or you know, light a fire. <laughs> you had access to guns? It was a BB gun. Okay. You know. I was the babysitter, was watching my brother and sister, so I thought it would be fun to bring the BB gun out to guard them. Did... And uh, there was some Beretta-like show on TV <laughs> where a girl was getting kidnapped, and I aimed it at the television and pretended to shoot him, except the gun was loaded and blew out the TV. And Yeah. My, I put a, You know what my solution was? I put a sticker over it. That's smart. A football sticker over it. <laughs> and when my mom and dad got home, my dad ran in. It was a Sunday. He said, I want to put the game on. <laughs> he said, what is this fucking sticker doing on TV? Turns on the TV, pulls the sticker, and electrons shot out of his face, and he screamed. And but did he ever good. put it... Do you see? Do you see? You know, you're shaking your heads. This is why they said, you know, let's worry about that second one. Now, given... <laughs> Given your Catholic upbringing, yes, did you confess about your, these things and no. did you feel guilt about them? No, not at all. No, I didn't really <laughs> buy the whole Catholic thing. I never bought it. You know, okay. it, once I when I was very very young, it's it's the same time you figure out Santa Claus isn't real as you figure out Jesus isn't real. Mm. You know, those stories to me were always the same. Yet, I no one would listen to me. I'd go, well, what do you mean Noah's Ark? That that's crazy talk. And my mom said, no, there was an ark. And they took two of every animal. I'm like, it's not possible, you know. <laughs> and I had, so I always had a chip on my shoulder about the church and never wanted to be involved. Thank God, by the way, Boston yeah. Catholics, you know, priests. Um, 
I was always asked to be an altar boy, and I was like, no way, not doing it. But because I didn't believe any of it, and in the moment I turned 18, I just, I walked. My mom tried to get me to be an extraordinary minister. She set up a meeting with the priest. What kind, is that a special kind of minister? I think, yeah, it's some, you know, the guy who hands out the little biscuit, you know, mm. the, the, the piece of the Jesus that you can eat. And, sure. you know, it was, uh, and, I, and I just kept saying, I'm just, this is not me. I don't believe this stuff, and I don't want to be a part of it. And uh, she said, just go meet with the priest. And he sat down, and he pitched me, and I just, you know, I said, look, he pitched I'm out. You. He pitched you? <laughs> he pitched me. <laughs> he showed you the deck. On the thing, and I just said, there's no way. I don't know why my mom told you what you thought. Because I'm, I'm completely out. I'm not even not doing this. I'm out the door. I'm not coming back. <laughs> Until you explain yourself <laughs> and these stories and this whole deal, it seems prehistoric, frankly. <laughs> um, what did your mom and dad do? My mom was a nurse, and my dad was a salesman. Mm. Mm-hmm. So, okay. are you tra- processing this? I'm processing the eye all of this. A new yeah. Mom, of, of a oh new no, no, mom? actually, no. Uh, no, I had that hadn't even occurred to me. But, but actually, if I do, um raise a child who's who dabbles in vandalism do you have any do you have any advice watch them <laughs> this is only because it's it was lord of the flies you know there okay 10 boys in a neighborhood and canoes and there were lots of guns around it's just because it was a small town and it was just no supervision so where were the canoes Somebody butchy had a canoe. <laughs> there were it was woods and nothing was developed there and rivers and we fished right. a lot too. We weren't always you know getting into trouble and we were nice kids. Kind of a Tom Sawyer like upbringing. Very Tom Sawyery. Yes, we weren't bad kids like going out and go let's do and we never stole. We never really beat anybody up or you know it was usually the other way. We were just always off on adventures and occasionally they would go sideways. <laughs> and you said that because of your dad, you got into comedy young. My dad was a frustrated comedian in that he never was a comedian, but blamed us uh, uh, as kids and having a family for his lack of a career as a comedian. Mm. So, but he was the guy who would like make the toast at the wedding or at the birthday party and, you know, try to be funny. And, and that was mostly like a Jerry Lewis, a take on Jerry Lewis. And Did you think he was funny growing up? Your dad? Uh, a little bit. Not much. It's not but a ringing endorsement. Here's what he did right. He sat us down in front of all the great stuff. Mm-hmm. You know, he said it's really important you learn who the Marx Brothers are, and we started there. Um, it, it, Charlie Chaplin didn't happen, but it was Marx Brothers. It was Lewis and Martin, and then um, as we got older, it would be, um, gosh, who uh, uh, George Carlin. I remember, you know, here, here's a George, here's your first George Carlin album. Listen to this, you're gonna love it. And you know, right up through, you know, uh, Saturday Night Live. <clears throat> you know, just all the important stuff. And it was, it, it, it's funny when I look back, I go, well, it's, it's obvious to me why I'm doing this now. Here's this guy who loved comedy, but, you know, never really gave us much attention and watched a shitload of TV. Now, of course, I'm in the TV. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I found a way into the TV with writing or on camera. And it's just a weird way of getting my dad's attention. But it's also, you know, something I love to do. Mm-hmm. So you went to Berkeley School of Music. Mm-hmm. Did you end up graduating from there? No, no, I dropped out. Okay. I was obsessed with the David Letterman show. Really obsessed. It was the only thing I was watching on TV. And it really called to me in a way that nothing else, you know, uh, nothing else ever had before i just thought everything he's saying what he's doing <clears throat> i've got to be a part of it in some way and and i remember a friend of ours got tickets and we went to the show and i had a bet with him that i would get on the show which i did somehow from the audience How? 
they coincidentally they just you know and i had a bet with everybody in that i knew in that school like you will see me on this show come hell or high water you know i was that crazy about it and there was uh, a bit where dave said we're going to sing oh canada are there any canadians here and i raised my hand and i ran up onto the stage and i got on Made a lot of money that night. Now, I never told the Letterman people this years later when I'm writing for the show for mm. five years that I'm that idiot fan. How much did you make? I don't even remember. It didn't even matter. I was just on the greatest show in the world. The I only know. show I'm, I'm watching, I'm right? just comparing this to like your it's win a It's college date money. Oh, my God. Uh, who knows? Five, ten bucks here and there from everybody. Right. But it was just the – I had conquered this thing. I'd gone to see this place – and I didn't know anybody in show business. I was like, I, I, I was shocked to just see how tiny a TV studio was and see right. the real Dave and the rest of it. So when I came back, you know, just, you know, being in 30 Rock and seeing that show, uh, I had to get there somehow. And I knew I wasn't going to get there via Berkeley College of Music, which I loved. And I loved the teachers there. And I kind of dug into English and just the regular classes. Mm-hmm. But it was, uh, I was bartending to put myself through school. This at- is when you were Pine Weasel? This is after Pine oh, Weasel. Post Pine Weasel. At Legal Seafoods, where I'm now uh, tending bar four or five nights a week and make a lot of money to pay for school. So my parents couldn't tell me what to do. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it was all about just me paying for everything. And a girl who had just moved here from New York who knew some folks at, uh, at SNL and Letterman, and she hooked up the internship. You know? Nice. And, you know, before long, I sold everything and just dropped out and moved. And what was your experience being an intern like? Oh, it's the greatest. Yeah, it's the greatest. You're, you know, you're touching this thing that you never thought you'd be a part of. You know, you're meeting the people. You're, hey, is that Al Franken? <laughs> you know, <laughs> are the Al Frank and Davis? You know, you know what I mean? It mm. was, I was starstruck, and I was just a guy who got, you know, beer and cheeseburgers for the graphics people. Um, okay, so you interned at Dave Letterman's show. Yes. Um, then, then what happened? Interned um, for the graphics people at Saturday Night Live and at David Letterman. Oh, you were doing both at the same time. Doing both. And then I was asked to do another internship just for David Letterman, but up in the office with everybody, working with the graphics people up there. And um, shortly after that, four weeks in to what was really my dream job. I just wanted to be an intern, and I wanted to be in a remote on a Friday with Dave, like a wacky intern remote. (laughs) Um, I got offered the job to answer phones at Saturday Night Live. And it was from there that I started writing jokes for um, Dennis Miller. Now, was that something that you had to hustle to be able to do or was it like if you're in the building you are allowed to submit jokes well just being around that staff uh, if i backing up to being an intern i started at live so when i was working the snl part of that internship i was the guy who was getting the pictures for weekend update jokes Mm -hmm. because back then there was no internet that had photographs you had to go find oh yeah these pictures how would you do it most of it was ap the AP building was right there. So, you know, let's say you needed a picture of the president. You'd go down there or there's a Nixon joke or mm-hmm. some. Re- you'd go down. They'd have a file of Nixon pictures <laughs> and you'd have the joke in your hand and you have to figure out which face is the best face. And you would take three of the pictures and then you would bring them up to uh, they had just invented paint box to these people who would scan the picture and put it in. And from there, it was up to the writers. So, you know, it was a really fun um, scavenger hunt uh, yeah. with a with a with a time crunch on it. Um, you know, we need a picture of Snoopy uh, with a football and Charlie Brown looking glum. You know, and I remember going into a, a New York public library and tearing out. A, you know, <laughs> it was that kind of resourcefulness that I had from growing up where like I am. I don't care. Resourcefulness. I unquote. get busted. <laughs> this show will have its its imagery it's Snoopy, for yeah. Weekend Update because that's way more important. So I was so excited to be doing this stuff and it contributing such a dumb little way to it. 
that you know I, I that's where i had that front row seat to the writers and i was like god what are these people what do they do they're writers what do they get paid you're kidding and you know and meeting them well, where did you go to school for this i didn't go to school you used to be a bartender you watched a lot of tv and i go it sounds a lot like me mm-hmm. and uh i just started doing it and i just thought if they could do it i think i can do it i've watched so much tv i know what i like comedically and why don't i just dig in so as an intern i wrote and wrote and wrote and wrote and only got one joke on on the very last night i was there um, don't remember the joke, but you know, it hit me, you know, you know, like your first hit of crack is what I say. I was like, wow, I just saw it on TV. So when I came back as the receptionist and had a little bit of a rapport with Dennis Miller, I just, um, I just started writing for him. I was reading newspapers while I was answering the phone, writing a page of jokes every day and turning them in. And then suddenly they started hitting and uh, eventually Lauren said, who, you know, who wrote the joke? Spike did. And you know, I was in. That's great. It's crazy. Yeah. So from there, where'd you go? Um, from there, I, I, I bounced on to a show, uh, Night Music with David Sanborn, which is the Star Trek of m- music shows. <laughs> so, <laughs> you know, the idea being we'll take six or seven bands, um, you know, Miles Davis, the Pixies, uh, Clapton, let's say, and 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 Hal Wilner, this composer who worked for, uh, not composer, music supervisor, mm-hmm. would put together the songs for everybody, but no one's really playing their songs, you know? Right. And so it was very eclectic mix of music, and I was allowed to be, I was told I could write the comedy in the show, but I'm going to be the writer's assistant. Mm-hmm. So um, there, since there wasn't really a lot of comedy in that show, um, the, the the writers who were hired for that first season left, and then they hired me to be the kind of segment producer writer. And I, I used to shoot little short films, like bumper films, out to commercial. But with guys, you know, and a lot of people on that show, and I'm not going to name names, but a lot of people in charge of that show were doing a lot of smack at mm. the time. What When was this? This is, I, I don't know, probably late 80s, right? Okay. So you, we would be, you know, on a Saturday in this studio somewhere by, you know, 23rd Street in Chelsea. And uh, the producer would say, hey, you want to do one of your videos? <laughs> I'd be like, sure. You know, he'd say, cool. He goes, uh, this is Miles Davis. <laughs> I'd be like, oh, you know, but I'm, I just dropped out of music school, right? I'm like, this is cool. He goes, what do you want to do? Goes, I'll do, he'll do whatever you want. So I would be in this like little room with a camcorder, which was new. And my only gimmick was I would just wipe the color out of it. So it black, it looked like black and white and it looked like a little short film. I'd be sitting where staying one week, Miles Davis, you know, it, Red Hot Chili Peppers, Sunrun, his orchestra. I had access to all these guys. They never really asked me what I was going to do with them. So mm-hmm. I'm just, you know, shooting anything, hoping to get something. And that was, you know, it was, uh, it, it, they they were on every show. And they were always strange and odd. And I'm sure I'd be embarrassed if I look back at them now. <laughs> I remember Miles Davis, the, the one I had him do was really short. It was just him looking right in the camera going, I've had a sore throat for 30 <laughs> years. That's what, he, he, that's what I had him do. And that was the bumper out. Um, and they, they got weirder from there. But it was, a, a, you know, an amazing experience, you know. We, uh, I remember one moment which was especially funny. It was right next to Fashion Institute of Technology. Okay. You know where that yes. is? Okay. So, and, and the producer's office, there was just a tiny alleyway between that, uh, uh, the Fashion Institute dorms with the girls in it and that office. So the producer quickly noticed that girls, this glass, when it would get dark, were using the glass to change. <laughs> and they would just stand in the window and it became this funny little, uh, story in the show. So uh, Eric Clapton's on the show that week, and I go out to the stage because he's just 
performing. You know, I'm there, I'm just sitting there by myself watching Eric Clapton jam, and uh, the producer goes, "Hey, when the when the girls start changing, come and get us." Eric wants to see. <laughs> I said, "What?" He goes, "You know, aren't you rehearsing?" He goes, it's "Just interrupt rehearsal." So I go into the office, and you know, I'm sitting there waiting, and <clears throat> this girl walks in, starts to close off, and I run to the stage, and I go, "Yeah, it's it's going on." <laughs> So Eric Clapton, producer, myself, and his band members all get into this tiny <laughs> all guys, and watch this girl try on lingerie for about 20 minutes while we're supposed to be rehearsing and right. staying on a schedule. And uh, not Clapton, someone else. It's, just, it's quiet. It's also creepy as hell. It's just quiet, just silent until someone goes, she's got nice milkers. <laughs> So it was one of the British guys. Could have been Clapton, but I'm I'm not going to say it is. But you know, loads of fun. You know, that's my life as kind of a kid leaving Massachusetts, going. This is the greatest world. I've entered a world of insanity, mm-hmm. and I love all of it. Now, important question: Were you ever tempted to do smack, being around it all the time? No, I didn't know it was going on. I just thought these people were kind of acting weird. Mm-hmm. You know, I I just you know again, it's like I, I had worked on a handful of shows. I just thought this is. This is what show business is. It's kind of loosey-goosey, and people are a little sleepy, <laughs> right? I just, didn't, I just didn't know enough, but I knew the legend of SNL and what was going on there. Yeah, mm. and I knew, you know, I, I saw some of that stuff. Did you dabble in drugs? Were you tempted? Yeah, here and there. Here well, because <laughs> talk show with Spike Ferriston, which I loved, had mm-hmm. comedy for stoners. That's right. But that was more about who was watching Fox Saturdays at midnight. Okay. People who were stoned. Right. Yeah. That was just an acknowledgement of this is who's watching this show mm-hmm. right now. Mm-hmm. When you were telling me about the little films that you, that sounds so, that sounds so uh, diminishing the way I said it, little films well, that you made. They weren't even films. Yeah. They, the things that you shot bumper, for, yeah. right, for the music show. Um it made me think a little bit of comedy for stoners, actually. Like, do right. you feel like there was sort of a bridge between those? <clears throat> Definitely. Well, I always loved that style of comedy, you know, and, and it's what it first attracted me to Letterman was he, that's what he did. That's what he sold, you know. Even on SNL, when it was weird and it, it was a non sequitur, it made no sense. That's the stuff I loved growing up, mm-hmm. you know. So um, when we did uh, The Late Night, <clears throat> that's what I said. I just recognized there wasn't a lot of that around right now. And why don't I, you know, just put a, make a little place in the show where I can have some fun and the writers can have some fun. Right. And not have to really explain themselves. So on the show, I would say to the writers, too, I'd say, look, you know, you want to do it this week? Just bring something in. <laughs> you know, do whatever you want. Make it strange. It does, You don't have to explain to me why it works. But just go ahead and go ahead and take a shot. Have some fun. And then were you ever like, this is terrible? Yep. <laughs> I certainly did that occasionally, but we had a good Was that hard or easy for you? What? To be like, your creative project is shit. No. To the be only- the boss, I guess, is actually what No, I love being the boss, and I love being, I love being in charge of all of it. it. It's a very comfortable place for me to do. Occasionally on that show... The fear would get you, you know, because we had a network that was not supporting us and we're up against Saturday Night Live. And when you're in a fearful place, it gets hard to look at a piece of comedy and feel good about it, you know? Right, because you don't want to take any risks, right? Right. And you get a lot, you get safe and then you can get yourself into trouble. But the, the reality is, and what I've learned since then is you really don't know what's going to hit and what's not going to hit. You know, it, you know, it's even true now with what I do. You just, you just got to keep getting out there and hitting balls and, and occasionally they go right over the fence. Mm-hmm. Um, the fear, you said you had a network that wasn't supporting you in what right, way? Right, right. Well, you know, they, 
put us on the air. And, and it ne- was 2006 to 2009. 2006, we right? were on for three years, and we did really well. We were producing viral content a lot. You know, it, again, it, great writers. I had a good eye for reading material from Letterman. So when we when we asked for writers and people did submissions, I was like, that guy, he's mm. fantastic, and bring him in from Canada. And he, you know, was on our show, and now is running Colbert. And this guy, look at him, he's incredible. He's now a producer on Bill Maher. You know, all of my guys have gone on to do great stuff. Um, so the network, however, was a little nervous about launching a late night franchise and never really dove in on the, uh, you know, the advertising, the simple stuff, right? you know, the acknowledgement that, Hey, you've got a guy out doing late night and here's a, here's a commercial for that show (laughs) about, (laughs) you know, and maybe Saturday night is not the right place to launch this against Saturday Night Live. I mean, you know, and, uh. Why are we making them do 22 episodes that are uh, evergreen instead of day and date? So what that means is I'm shooting a show in October that might air the following May. That's so hard with a late night show. Yeah. Yeah. How am I? What am I writing about at that point? You know what I mean? So that that that's what I mean. Mm-hmm. Did, did you have that fear that you mentioned the whole time? No, no, not at all. No, we were also a cheap show. We didn't cost a lot of money, and we had a nice tailwind from Mad TV. So, you know, the rating, you know, now, I I think Fallon would kill for that rating. (laughs) You know, the ratings were always decent. Um, And, you know, for me, it was totally a dream job. So It's a job I never thought I would get to do. So, Mm -hmm. you know, I was very grateful to Fox that they put me up there. And uh, it was really Gail Berman that threw it up, and then... Um, they handed off to Peter Ligori and Peter Chernin, and, and you know it was a, an amazing ride. Great There's ride. So many highlights in your <clears throat> career, given that you're a comedy legend. <laughs> I mean, you've just had such a long career. There's so much I want to get to, like Simpsons and Seinfeld and all that. But um, but I'm wondering, at the beginning, well, at the beginning it was music, mm-hmm. but at a certain point it was be- television comedy at what point like at that at one point were you thinking i want to just be a writer and then oh maybe i'll be a producer and then i want to be in front of the camera like how did that sort of evolve <clears throat> you mean the on-camera stuff yes what was the dream initially or was that always part of it no i really wanted i really like being a writer and i'd always you know but once i uh, letterman five years of letterman that was that was it for me right and then i thought i'll try this half hour thing Right. But I liked late night more than half hours. And then I, you know, went on to do Seinfeld and my first script is The Soup Nazi. And very quickly, I'm nominated for an Emmy. Right. Mm-hmm. That must have first been script, nice. It was amazing. <laughs> it was an amazing thing because I think there were some writers back in New York who were like, yeah, good luck, buddy. <laughs> good luck, Ferriston. <laughs> we'll see how you do. And, you know, that's the way my inner kind of monologue dialogue works. That's what I'm telling myself most of the time, too. So it was pretty shocking, actually. Mm-hmm. But it was a script that, you know, yes, I'm credited with writing, but Larry and Jerry and everybody contributed to it. And it's a, you know, it's a big show. So after that, you know, I, I don't know. I think a bunch of years on Seinfeld and writing and the time commitment and then, you know, taking money and development deals and trying to create the next Seinfeld had really worn me oh, down. Oh, yeah, because you worked on Michael <clears throat> Richards' show. Right. And But before that, you come oh. off Seinfeld and they just go, here's millions of dollars and all we want is one script from you next year. But make it the next Seinfeld. <laughs> you know? And you're like, okay. Who's and- handing out those deals? <laughs> <laughs> These deals don't come around anymore. Oh, damn. I go, do I have to work on a show? They go, nope. You just, you know, write a script next year. You know, my psychology is not what it is today. So I just collapsed under the pressure of that. You now know, right? you think you'd um, shine under it? 
flourish? No, but I would handle it a little mm-hmm. differently. You know, I would I I would speak up and go, look, I let's do something a little more than one script, and because we're talking about a month of writing here, you know, right. what can we do all year long and work? Because I like to work. Um, but it was such a backwards way for it was it, it was uh, it never made sense to my psychology. Here's a giant paycheck, and now do this thing. I've always been a guy like, oh, I have an idea. Mm-hmm. Now, where can we put that? You know, and you like it was, the hustle. And it was never about the money. It's always been about the idea. Right. So that's after like development deals and bad experiences there. I, I just you know took a, a step back and went, what do I really want to do here? Let's forget money. What do I want to do? And it was late night. I'd like to get back in a late night. And I'd like to uh, get a late night show for Norm MacDonald. That was how this whole thing started. And I met with Norm at Norm's. And, uh, <laughs> you know, I said, uh, I think we should do a late night show. And he goes, well, yeah, what's this about? And it's, like, it's about you. It's you in a suit interviewing people. No, what's the late night show about? And, and I, <laughs> that's pretty much the way the meeting went. I guess it's not about anything, Norm. It's just watch TV tonight around 1130. That's what it's about. Imagine yourself behind that desk. It never, it never happened because he was looking for some sort of premise or something. I don't know, but um, I went back to CA and I said, "Look, you know, if I'm being completely honest with myself, I want to try this." And my agent, Michael Rosenfeld, said, "All right, let's do it." You know, I don't think he really believed that I could do it, nor did I. But he, you know, uh, got me a bunch of meetings, mm-hmm. and before long, um, Fox bought the show. And we were making pilots. And, you know, I called up Seinfeld and I said, you know, to put this over the top, would you be my guest on one of the pilots? And he said, sure. And then they gave us more money and now we had a studio. And so it, it, it got traction. Um, you know, you just, it, it's weird. You know, they cracked the door open a little bit and I kept kicking it open more and more and adding more and more to it. Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> we went through two network presidents on that show. So Gail Berman was looking for the next Conan and I stepped into her office and she went, oh, you're the next Conan, you know, mind blower. And then she quit, you know, a few weeks later after she was picked up the show. You know, we did one presentation. She picked up the show and then she quit. And (laughs) the new president, P. Ligori, said, I like what you guys did, but let's let's do some more pilots. So we did six more pilots. Why? What do you... Why? Why did they make you do so many pilots, do you think? Well, when an executive leaves... Pretty much the development leaves and the support for the shows they supported leave. And, you know, the reason they're leaving usually is because they're not doing well. Mm-hmm. And I can't speak to Gail's situation there. I, you know, I just don't know about it. But in general, the new guy who comes in goes, you know, like clean any of house, us. Yeah. yeah, they clean house, but they really, yeah, let me, let me do this the way I want to do it. Even if there's nothing wrong, right? So it's rare that I survive that little bump in the road. Um because we had been picked up for 46 episodes on Saturday nights or 44. And we're, we were celebrating at the Polo Lounge with the executives when we found out Gail left. <laughs> and then it, there was a lot of time after that. And I know a lot of people listening probably have those stories of these, you know, but that's just the way television works, mm-hmm. right? And then Peter Liguori said, let's, uh, you know, let's slow down, which was awful to hear, <laughs> but eventually said, here's some money. Um, and why don't you do six pilots? Why don't you hire, you know, get a real studio and um, we'll get you some guests. You get the rest. So we got Brian Cranston, um, Jason Bateman, um, the Arrested Development people. Who's uh, who's the other kid on Arrested Development? I can't remember. Michael, uh, Sarah. Yeah. Um, and a few others. And, you know, we cut together a reel out of those six shows. And, and uh, soon after we were picked up. So, you know, it's it's mystifying. 
Do you miss it? A little bit. A little bit. I, I, I'd like to do it again. I've been thinking about it lately. But, um, you know, I started a production company last year. Here, here's something that had really been bugging me. And I'm sure it bugs you or anybody else in this business. You can't really make more than one project a year. You know, contractually, your lawyer will always go, all right, well, that's in first position. No one else is going to make a deal with you for anything else. So a year ago, I finally got tired of it. And I called up a friend of mine um, who I knew from Letterman, who was out here in the unscripted space and started the company and just left. I said, let's start a new production company. And he and I got together and formed Hangar 56, um, which is because we didn't have offices. But we do have uh, airplane hangars down at Santa Monica Airport that we have that we use for storage <laughs> and cars. And I have a little desk out there where I write. So uh, a year ago, I now have I, I I started this company. And I can now sell lots of stuff, mm-hmm. and um, you know that's a lot in the unscripted space because of Car Matchmaker. We're putting together our half hour pitches right now, and and. I'm also, you know, putting together two or three things for for me to try to get out and do and to talk about. But, you know, I don't know if that's going to be straight late night. I think late night is kind of a kid's game, mm-hmm. um, you know. And I, I'm but grab- you're ageless. We've I'm, we've established maybe, this. I'm in a, a constant tug of war between silliness and going. Hey, did you watch the way Don Lemon talked to that weird doctor the other night? <laughs> you know, I've got some things to say about that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> When he said, uh, this is your moment, tell it. Do you know who I'm talking about? Did you see this thing? I did not, actually. Okay, Don Lemon is interviewing this this doctor who I guess treated the police officers who were shot um, in Texas. Is that yeah, where that happened? Yeah, This guy made this, you know, he breaks down a little bit um, in the interview. And he's just, you know, very human response. But I don't understand any of this. You know, I don't understand why policemen are getting shot. I don't understand why black people are getting shot. And it's really amazing, powerful, touching moment. And then Don Lemon goes, what would you like to say to everyone here in America? <laughs> but you're at home going, he just said he just it. Said it <laughs> he yeah. just said it. And secondly, Don Lemon, <laughs> we know your ratings. You're not talking to the world right now. That's not the world. You're talking to a small town in Pennsylvania. <laughs> that's, that's what's going on. So, you know, that, I don't know, that, that's the type of stuff that I find myself talking to the TV about more often than not. And by the way, I like Don Lemon and I like CNN, but... I think if I am going to do something, it's going to be in that neck of the woods rather than just the outright comedy for stoner stuff. Mm-hmm. So something a little more smart. Maybe. Maybe. I don't know. I'm not that bright, but per- perhaps. <laughs> <laughs> um, I want to talk about Car Matchmaker. I want to talk about Seinfeld. But I also want to talk about the fact that you were a producer on the Jamie Kennedy experiment. Yes. Okay. So when when did that happen? And was that... Um, this feels like a, I feel like I'm going to say something judgmental about Jamie Kennedy experiment, which I don't want to because I actually like Jamie Kennedy <clears throat> quite a bit, um, even though I don't know him. But to me, that when I read, I'm just going to go out on a limb here and you tell me I'm wrong. When I read that, I was like, oh, that that seems like a weird move in your career. I was on a deal with uh, Big Ticket and that was one of their shows. And they asked me if I would help out, and I said yes. I thought it was a very funny show, mm-hmm. and I and I thought Jamie was great, and you know they were right down the hall, and I said, yeah, I'll go sit there for a day. <laughs> I was a consulting producer. Okay, so yeah, it so wasn't I think, the, I No, gotcha. I wasn't there. I wasn't full time, but I but I liked the show. It made me laugh, and mm-hmm. I thought, well, you know, again, it's a, it's a it's a West Bridgewater thing. These people are paying me. I, I'm not sure I'm paying them back by writing a pilot that didn't get picked up. So what can I do for them to justify this ridiculous amount of money I'm getting paid every week? Right. You know what I mean? Because it's killing me that <laughs> I'm getting paid this much 
and I'm not giving them anything. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Yes. So, um, what was working on Seinfeld? Well, now you you did Simpsons and Seinfeld. Simpsons, I just wrote a script. They asked me to write a script when I was on Letterman. So okay. I spent, I think, a total of five hours in their offices, and then that was it. But mm-hmm. I knew I knew the writers. I knew George, you know, George and and Tom and Max Gamble and Prost, those guys, George mm-hmm. Meyer. Um, but um, for the I'm listeners really who, are, who are who are wondering right now, which script? <clears throat> Sideshow Bob's Last Gleaming wasn't my idea. They just gave me the episode to write. I think they were grooming me to, to come on staff. But um, you know, I, I really liked writing for people. Mm-hmm. You know, and I was back in New York, and you know, I, I loved that show. It just wasn't it wasn't for me, right? You know? So what was your experience on Seinfeld like? You wrote the greatest. so not just Soup Nazi, but also the episode where Elaine dances. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yep. I just read about that in Seinfeldia, this book that just came <laughs> out about those those experiences. It was um, like any show uh, or business, uh, the, the, the culture of the office is starts at the top and it trickles down from the top. And Jerry is pretty much, you've seen him, you get what you get with Jerry. Mm-hmm. Really nice guy, respectful guy, super funny, very, very hard worker. And very relaxed. And that was the vibe on that show. It was a really, really great p- place to write. And Larry, you know, obviously, we've seen him in Curb, or a version of him, knows funny stories. You know, um, not, you know, can Jerry date Elaine? What if Jerry and Elaine date and the date goes wrong? You know, these are not funny stories. Mm-hmm. You know, Larry would go, why don't you put a, uh, what about a story about a blazer? And I go, What? <laughs> Yeah, yeah, I was shopping for a blazer, and I tried on this blazer, and I realized it wasn't right. And I could tell the salesman who was trying to sell it to me thought I didn't have enough money for it, so I bought the blazer out of spite. <laughs> and I'm like, that's a story? He goes, yeah, that's a story. Put it in the episode. You know, so you know, I learned so much from, from Larry about how to just zero in on these weird little eccentricities and odd moments of life and how that can yield a very big episode mm-hmm. of comedy. And where did the idea for the Soup Nazi episode come from? It's real life. Real guy. We used to go to lunch there at Letterman. Um, you know, I got rejected the first time because I did not believe that it was hard to order soup. <laughs> um, and it was just obsessed with this misogynistic kind of angry guy and, and the way he did business and the way people would, <clears throat> the people, if someone was getting yelled at in front of him, the rest of the line would turn away. To not see it, to stay in the good graces of the soup Nazi. Even if you were my friend and we went together and you were starting to get yelled at and he pulled the soup away, I would pretend I did not know you. I really would. I would step away a little bit so he did not exact any sort of revenge onto me. Was the soup really that good? It was delicious, yeah. <laughs> it was totally worth it. You have to rem- imagine cold, you know, super cold uh, winters. He started, I think, in September or October. So you, you go for this walk a few blocks. It's freezing out. And then you get this lobster bisque with a piece of bread and an orange and a tiny chocolate. Mm. And, it, you know, for lunch, it blows your mind, right? And it's perfection. And it's $8. The whole thing's $8. And you get a nice... I mean, the whole thing was fantastic. It's <laughs> gone, though. I don't think he's there anymore. I think he's got, he's got you know, a, a chain and he's got uh, cans of soup and he's disappeared. But What a loss. <laughs> I think the world is safer <laughs> without that guy. <laughs> um, so you mentioned that psychologically you're different now mm-hmm. than you were... Mm-hmm. Uh, Way back when, perhaps not that long ago, actually, but at some point before. Can you talk a little more about how you feel like you've changed? Well, years of therapy, 
years, uh, you know, well, uh, uh, I remember I was in a really bad breakup when I was on Seinfeld. And, you know, I was sitting at home in lots of pain. This girl cheated on me and broke up with me. And I was like, you know, level tens of insanity about it. And and when I calmed down, I realized I was in a pattern mm-hmm. where I was dating girls for three or four years. And it would always end in this ending. It was the third relationship I'd had at, at such a young age that ended that exact way. And I went to a bookstore in Studio City to the first time of self-help aisle and to get a, a book on relationships, right? Just mm-hmm. to see what I could learn. I didn't know what the hell was going on here, why that would happen. And I read this this story about self-esteem and something, and they had an argument between a, a, a hypothetical boyfriend and girlfriend, and they were the exact lines wow. that I had said to this girl when we broke up. And I went, well, I something's wrong with me then. This, If that's in a book, something's like, wrong. What kind of stuff had you said to her? It was just it was just a hypothetical argument and the sides and why things were happening. But it was you know I I don't remember the lines. All I know is it like it hit me like a ton of bricks. Like either there's a microphone in my house, <laughs> <laughs> which I did consider for a moment, or my parents did not shape, give me everything I needed to walk out into life. Right, mm-hmm. and you know it's a moment of self exploration. So I remember. Uh, I called a friend of mine, and he hooked me up with Jason Priestley. Jason Priestley shrink. <laughs> I don't know if he had just gotten divorced, or he was—I I don't know what it was. That is quite a referral. It's a—it it's a, was just so weird, but yeah. I was so tickled by it, and and <laughs> and, and uh, I still wanted the girl back, so I, I called her up to see if she goes. She's like, "No way, I'm out." You know, I, I escaped. You know, she's probably a hostage at that point. <laughs> and so I went to the guy, and I, and I, I said, "Look, you know." Kick me out of here if you want, but I've noticed a few things, and it began this kind of this little journey into, oh, I, you know, and I really, you know, seventy percent of what my parents taught me is right, and then this thirty percent is fucking crazy. What is that thirty percent? Oh, just about the world. The, you know, it, you know, they were very. It, at times, my father could be very judgmental, maybe a little racist. You know, um, you know, here's, you know, here's what makes us valuable. You know, as human beings, and if you don't, you know, money is was an important thing. Like, if you don't have money, you're really not worth anything in this world. Wow. Lots of stuff like that. Um, but mostly, it was a uh, stuff that made you feel that you didn't have value. Yeah, I was walking around very insecure mm-hmm. and very, very much concerned with what other people thought of me, which is now completely evaporated. But when you're walking around in that headspace, you know, connecting the dots back to Berklee College of Music. Now, here I am knowing I've made a bad decision. I can't let right. the rest of the world find out my friends and family. I couldn't. I can't tell them the truth because now I'm going to be even less than, mm-hmm. you know, it was just it was all that stuff. So in relationships, of course, you know, I'm a complete mess. By the way, never taught really how to be in one. So, um, you know, I just, I'd go see this guy every week and it became a really great part of my life. And, uh, it, you know, changed me completely, changed mm. me completely. So your pattern before that with relationships, <laughs> let's get into the, the pattern before that. I like that. Yeah. Broken like pickers. <laughs> do- what Dr. Phil says, picking the exact wrong person for you. Mm, yes. I-, I like that. That girl looks a little too skinny and might have an eating disorder. <laughs> Why don't we go out with her? She's great. <laughs> I have a friend who's repeatedly drawn to women with anxiety issues. Yes. Which is interesting because I don't find anxiety attractive. No. But he does. It's awful. This guy gave me a great piece of advice. He goes, look, he goes, uh, you're programmed to be attracted to people based on your mother and your father. And if your mother and father, like, like so you're the son, your mother, if she's dysfunctional, you're going to be attracted to that dysfunction. It's going to look like that 
that moment, uh, the first look, I'm in love. I'm because your 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 eyes are recognizing something very familiar mm-hmm. as normal. Even if your household is constantly in turmoil, you're gonna go. That's the one for me. He right, goes, it feels when yeah right when you're out and you see that person and you have that moment with them. Turn around and get away. He goes because what you're recognizing is this explosion that's about to happen. Mm-hmm. That, that was a really great piece of advice. He goes, the person you should be with, you're not going to have that feeling of love at first sight with. It's probably going to be more of a friend. And is that what happened with your wife? No, not really. <laughs> she was kind of in between. She's very cute. Yeah, but I did not have the first look with her. Mm-hmm. She, but she was super hot and beautiful. And I'm very happily, happily married at 13 years here. Was that hard, though, to not to, to turn away from that lighting it's on fire so feeling? It's so counterintuitive though? to what mm-hmm. we do. Yeah, it makes no sense because it's a very strong draw. Yeah. Moth to a light bulb. You, you're looking at that person going, she's perfect for me. And she's really imperfect for you. I and had... until you change, it, that it was only in the beginning that he was saying that. Until you've gone through a transformation and you, you feel a little differently, mm-hmm. you know, uh, he, he said, just, you know... <laughs> avoid it for a couple of years and then you'll start to be attracted to different things in people and you'll start to look at that person like god that person fucked up <laughs> but it's really a reflection of you and how fucked up you were right if that makes sense yeah i had that too where i was constantly constantly drawn to the wrong kind of guy mm-hmm. and i became aware of it um and realized if i feel that that electrifying feeling that means i should not go for that person so how am I ever going to meet someone? Mm-hmm. I don't know what to do in this situation. I just, like you're saying, just took time to sort of be kind of transform. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yep. So how did you meet your wife? Had a party. <laughs> she, uh, she was invited by one of the Seinfelders. I threw this big party up at uh, what it was, what is now Hollywood Highland. You remember it used to be a Holiday Inn with a rotating restaurant mm-hmm. right there. And I rented out the rotating restaurant. And put up on the Holiday Inn sign, come, um, um, come see Spike's new apartment. <laughs> and I invited everyone in Hollywood. Back Hollywood in 1990 was not Hollywood today. Mm-hmm. And I'm not kidding. I mean, it was an, I, we, telephone poles, Seinfeld party. Come, you know, we just invited the whole city to come. And I hired Buckwheat Zydeco to play. And, and one of the writers, Jeff Schaefer, um, had a crush on this girl and told her this was his party and why don't you come along? <laughs> so I bumped into her in the lobby and, and she said, so what are you doing here? She goes, oh, I'm here for Jeff's party. And I'm like, he told you that, that motherfucker. <laughs> I go, why don't you come have a drink with me? And I invited her for a drink and, and we danced that night and I think she felt bad for me. I, I don't know. Um, bad for you, why? I don't know. Oh, I know why. Here's why. I, I didn't dress that night for the party. Mm. So she's looked beautiful in this beautiful gold dress. Here I am throwing this giant party. This is, see, here are the holes. Here are the holes. I showed up to my own party with kind of a dirty T-shirt and green chinos, <laughs> right? <laughs> and everybody else is dressed for a big Saturday night, right? right. So that's what I mean. Yeah, she was, but uh, intrigued, I think, mm-hmm. a little. And yeah. how did Jeff feel about the fact that he stole her mm. right out from under him at his own party? Yeah, he had a girlfriend at the time. Oh, okay. So that was easy to manage. <laughs> And in fact, I think I dated her out of spite for a little while to him to to, to give him a hard time about it because I knew he couldn't do this. <laughs> <laughs> um, how many years after you starting to go to Jason Priestley's therapist was this? <laughs> <laughs> how many years? What after you starting? I think that was I, that was in the middle of it. That it was, was yeah okay. yeah yeah that was in the middle of it. Good. Then this question will make sense. When you first, given that you were aware that you needed to change your pattern, when you first met her and first mm-hmm. started dating her and falling for her, were you worried at all? 
Like, uh oh, what if I'm doing it again? No, because I was I was using him as kind of a coach. Okay, and I was like, all right, like take me through this, you know. And I had just broken up with a girl um, who wasn't kind of measuring up, but he just she, he shifted my perspective on the whole thing very very quickly, and and it was How? it was very quick. It was like you're sitting here uh, on these dates worrying about what they think of you, and what you should really be doing is going, what do I think of them? And it was that that simple, mm-hmm. you know, and, and once you do that and then go, all right. And he said, you know, over the course of five dates, put up some hurdles for her to jump over. Don't let her know about him. Like what? Engage her in a topic of conversation that's important to you and see if she meets you and, and can have a conversation about it. And if not, dump it. Get rid of it. it. You know? <laughs> dump it. Not her. I mean, no, dump <laughs> no. the relationship. But, you know, see, you know. Think so, of these things that are important to you. Um, I remember one of them was movies. Like I love uh, uh, funny movies. Mm-hmm. Uh, the girl I had just been with did not could you know you could sit her down in front of the best Monty Python. She would just not even laugh. She'd go, "I don't get it," you know. So that was really bugging me. <clears throat> but um, we had the same favorite movie at the time, Goodfellas, mm-hmm. and she knew a lot about it. And she was quoting lines, so I was like, "God, that's how." I mean, right there, she cleared that hurdle. Yeah, it's a beautiful little blonde girl who knows Goodfellas. Like, I'm done. I'm <laughs> like done. She loves comedy. Came from a funny family, and uh, doesn't get the car thing, but that was okay. I didn't really want to invite her into the car car thing. When world. did the car passion start? Cars are always going on. They're always, always. in the background. They're okay. always in the background. Have yes. you always had multiple cars? Yeah, kind of. Not always, but um, but there was always a car in the background. It was always an important choice, whatever it was. Even if I was only spending two grand on a car, I was like, I'm going to get the old Cougar XR7 that's unreliable, convertible, rather than a new car that's mm-hmm. reliable because that's fucking boring. Um, so she, your wife, is not into the cars. Not at all. No. Nope. In fact, I think she saw me driving uh, an old Porsche one day, beautiful old car, and just thought, "Oh, that poor guy. He's got an old car. <laughs> <laughs> Look at him driving around Hollywood in an old Porsche. I thought he had a new one." She confessed <laughs> that to me recently. She goes, "I really felt bad for you that you were in this car." What were the other hurdles that he that you? I don't do even remember? remember. God, I don't know. I wish I knew, but mm-hmm. um. It's, I'm sure really I swept advice, a few though. under the carpet too. You know, I half took the advice. <laughs> it's it's really good Here's advice. Here's the blonde though. hair hurdle. <laughs> she passed that. <laughs> the with, cute hurdle. With gold, cute golden eyes <laughs> and and a great body hurdle. That's what she did. She passed it. <laughs> but I think so many young people are just focused on. I just want you to like me. That right. You, that you you don't think. I mean, I remember a friend saying that to me. Like you lose yourself the second you start dating someone and mm-hmm. that's how I was I was it just only became about do they still like me do they still like me do they still right. like me which is so gross you're dead after that you're yeah. totally dead yeah because you're not taking what you need out of the situation eventually when things you know cool off yeah. and you see this person you're like oh I don't like anything about them how did this happen and also and now you're trapped it's also like never at that when you're in that like I feel like stage of development it's not even about the other person at all. It's just about the validation. Mm-hmm. It's really not about them because you don't even know them. Mm-hmm. You're, you're just so needy. Right. Yeah. Do you struggle with any of the, this insecurity or worrying about what people think of you at all anymore? Not really. Nope. Nope. Pretty really? cool. Pretty relaxed about How nice it all. for you. I have the... Uh, uh, well, isn't that where you want to... I mean, yes. look, <clears throat> you're around long enough, right? And by your age, I hope I'm there. Just any age. Any age. All right. You see where this goes, right? N- nobody on this planet right now listening right now is going to be here in 200 years. We're all fucking dead, yeah. right? 
I guess. I don't think they're going to remember any of it. Legacy, forget it. No one's going to know. You might remember Obama, but okay, 400 years from now, you're not going to. Yeah. When you once you know that and you really understand that, what what does any it of it matter? matter? None I of know. it matters. None of this matters. This is fun. So relax and have a good time. You know, roll with the punches. Be yourself. Um, let's talk about your kids for a second, and then let's talk about Car Matchmaker. Now, you have two kids. Did you always want kids? You have two kids, right? Yeah. Two sons. Two boys. Did Jack you- and James. Heirs. <laughs> I get so excited when I watch Game of Thrones. I'm like, oh, I'm making kings. <laughs> did you always want children? Um, no. No. Not at all. No. You, you, did you actively not want them? No. No. You were just kind of neutral? It, it, it always felt like this. all this stuff would just happen anyways, you know? So I was mostly focused in the showbiz place. Just mm-hmm. like, if I don't make this part of my life work, I've got nowhere to go. Right. I don't have an education, really. I, I can't function in an office. And, you know, I've, well, I've done a lot of blue-collar work and stuff, mowing lawns and stuff. That stuff's over. So I was always, I always thought the family and the, the marriage would take care of itself, right? Um, and I would make those decisions, you know, as they came up. Mm-hmm. But my wife did the other day. She said she wanted to have another kid. And I was just like, are you crazy? Why? You're absolutely crazy. Because the third kid is the divorce kid. When the third <laughs> kid comes, known thing? That's, everybody knows that. I had never heard that. Yeah. You throw the third kid into your party and it's over. The party's over. And I don't want to get divorced. Why is the third kid the divorce kid? I don't know. Ask the courts. <laughs> <laughs> I, mean, I, I guess that's I need to talk happens. to the experts. You talk to Dr. Drew about it, and he'll tell you that triplets are the recipe. The, the, you know, 90, 90% of people have triplets that get divorced. He, he gets, has triplets, and he he's has, not divorced. He has triplets. That's what I said. He has divorced. He goes, but I am a doctor. That was his response. <laughs> he goes, he's got Jedi relationship skills. But we have, oh, we have Jack and James, eight and six, Erica and myself, you know, two careers and a dog. And that's as much as that house can stand. What does your wife do? She's a political coach, life coach, very uh, involved um, just politically on the side as well with uh, Pacific Palisades Democratic Club. Mm, PPD was a burner. She was uh, out there with Bernie Sanders trying to win and slay Hillary Clinton supporters and Hillary Clinton, if possible. Um, <laughs> But, you know, just busy and active. And mm-hmm. uh, if, you th- if you throw, you forget. You, you don't want to be up all night with a kid, a little kid anymore. Forget it. It's done. There's too much parsing out of our time right now. <laughs> now, is you do she... This? Like, she's right now, right now. She texted me right before I walked in. When I'm ovulating. Be, when are you going to be home so you can watch a kid so I can go out? Mm-hmm. And I said, I'm here, I'm doing a podcast, and I'm hoping it's going to go very long <laughs> because I don't, you know, you know what I mean? Because I have stuff to do when I get home. So now throw a baby into that situation. Right now, it, it kind of works. It's all mm-hmm. good. You throw a baby into the situation, it's over. It's now, done. I assume you've made her, her aware of how you feel about the third baby. Is she okay with that? Uh, well, I don't know. <laughs> I, I I need to be involved so I can control my side of it. I have a lot of leverage in that one. You do? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you can just do it. It's, you know, not do it, I mean. Right. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So, but that sounds like you guys have not come to a consensus. There She's- doesn't need to be on the third one. Third one doesn't matter. The first one is a really big conversation, yeah, right? Yeah. That first one is a lot of planning and with schools, and we better start applying now, even though we're three months pregnant and announcements. The oh, second- shit. Is that how far I'm on? Should I already be choosing no, schools? No, you, you don't have to do anything. 
Just chill. Oh, out. I already have a list in my head of you shit don't even I have, have to, to do, do before anything. the baby comes, though. The the birth, what do they call it? The birth plan. The birth plan. With the right music and the right, <laughs> we got to make sure we have the right nanny and all that stuff. The second one comes, half that stuff goes right out the window. The third one, just whatever, have it in a tree or in the backyard. <laughs> <laughs> It'll be fine because you see that none of that stuff really mattered. You know what I mean? It, it's fun stuff for you to do with your husband, but it, it, it's all sort of on autopilot. Yeah. Kids, you know, my experience, a lot of self-preservation. They don't they don't want to die either, so you don't have to worry about them that much. You can leave the matches out. <laughs> you know what I mean? You should be my birth coach. <laughs> I would love to be your birth coach. Okay, great. Yes, I would help you out with it. It's fun. It's really fantastic. When are you having your baby? Um, January, February. Fantastic. My my first was born in January. It's the greatest. You're going to love it. Is Did your you- husband nervous? Um we're both a little bit nervous, but not that nervous. It's early enough. That I think as it gets closer, right now we're just still like, we can't believe we're pregnant and um, I feel sick all the time. And Fantastic. Yeah. So it's all that good. And like still kind of so excited when we see the ultrasounds and we see the little it's tiny the thing wiggling around. Yes. And yeah. Yeah. My wife framed her ultrasounds and decorated the room with them. I said, <laughs> you're going to do that with the second one? She goes, oh, that was so dumb. <laughs> I go, yeah, it was kind of weird. Um. But boy, it, it's really going to help you with work. You're going to love it. <laughs> what does that mean? It's going to take the pressure off. I feel like it the, already has. When you have that kit, yeah. yeah. When you see it, you go, oh, well, this is way more fun. This is a way more fun experience raising kids. Because before I was pregnant, I basically felt like no matter what I'm doing, I should be doing more. Mm-hmm. I should always be pushing myself, do more of this, get out there more, make sure I'm doing more. Like, should I send this email? I don't really feel like it. Do it. Just always like more, more, more. Mm-hmm. And kind of always feeling like I'm never doing enough. Right. But once I got pregnant, um, I was like, I'm going to take it easy if I need to take it easy. I'm. Yeah. It's totally shifted my focus. And it's yes. nice. It's nice to not have That's to focus it. on all that ephemeral bullshit. Yes. Everybody else looks pretty stupid without kids, right? <laughs> You're just like, what are you doing? What do you mean? <laughs> you went to a rave in El Salvador. That's stupid. Oh, have you ever been Grow to a rave? Up. Have I? Yeah. Yeah. I never went to one. I, I, I thought kid, about it for a long time. But I never. I went. don't even. I don't go anywhere anymore. I really do. I was kidding about my kids. We're gonna we're gonna get an old truck after this, and we're gonna go get ice cream because mom's not around, and it's gonna be <laughs> the greatest part of my month. <laughs> just us in an old truck eating ice cream. So, car matchmaker. Yes. Speaking of, I just saw an episode with an Icon truck for three hundred thousand oh dollars. God, I can't believe! Like, beautiful. I never would have guessed that they cost that much. Jeff is a car guy. Yeah, mm-hmm. I love that truck. I used to produce Carcast. We had Jonathan Ward on. Oh yeah, times and we had that truck on. Yeah, I love that truck. It's great. It's amazing. I was just over there with those guys. Oh yeah, Jonathan's great. John, that 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 truck's an amazing truck, isn't it? Yeah. $300,000. He, he right. does an incredible job of making it new and modern and super convenient, but not losing all of the awesome vintage touches. And in that, in the case of that truck, of it being very rugged, of it being a work truck. Uh, it had a lot of bison in it, too, as I recall. Yeah, the bison seat cover. The bison seat cover was kind of You said for happened. extra, you could have a bison tail. Right. <laughs> I was like, what is bison? I didn't even know what a bison was. I was just laughing. And a boat horn. But yeah, it, oh, yeah. right? It was really loud. And really kind of hard to drive around Studio City, too, but um, beautiful to look at. And right, why is it 300 grand? That's expensive, huh? It's very expensive. Yeah, yeah. The episode with Genevieve <clears throat> Moore. Okay, so for listeners who are like, what are you talking about? Okay. Um, you host a show mm-hmm. and executive produce a show called yeah. Car Matchmaker, yep. where you 
someone is in the market for a new car mm-hmm. or an, not maybe not a new car, but for another car, mm-hmm. you present them with three different options yep. and then they choose. That's right. It's a really good idea for a show. It's a simple little idea. And when <clears throat> they asked me if I wanted to do it, I said, as long as I can make it funny and make it kind of like a Letterman remote, like, hey, Paul, you want to go buy a car? You know, <laughs> just we fall, you know, a man in the street. They, Who's they, the they that asked you to do it? Uh, Ellen Rakuten, Ellen Rakuten Entertainment. She used to be Oprah Winfrey's um, mm-hmm. executive producer for many years. And the folks at Esquire Network, you know, we all made the show together. And, you know, that, you know, I said, I'm not going to do a, a weird reality show, <laughs> but if I can be the guy I kind of was on on the late night remotes, not really writing stuff for myself, but, but, you know, just being, you know, off the cuff, man in the street and being funny and chuckling and, and, and also indulging this love of cars that I have and all of my connections to the car world. And, uh, you know, I, I'd be happy to do it. So we came up with that little format and it, and it works, you know, it's a tight little format. It's sticky. I'm learning all these reality show phrases like sticky. That means you, once you turn it on, you can't turn it off mm. and suddenly you watch Right. Cause three. you want to find out which one are they going to choose? You want to watch and then you watch three or four more of them. And, um, and we do a segment in every show where we take, you know, like this season, Keanu Reeves and introduce him to this girl, uh, this, this young woman who's just learning how to ride. She's been riding for less than a year and he's been riding his whole life and he's telling her this is, you know, where you're going to die in an intersection. And <laughs> this is the kind of bike you should have and here are the accidents I've had. And so I always take the, the notable people from the car world and introduce them to regular folks and, and hopefully educate the audience about their choices, too. Now, Genevieve Morton, swimsuit model, yes, seemed terrified. She was during the drifting segment. She was legit terrified. Okay, so that right. was real. Yeah, she looked. Yes. She looked. I felt bad for her. She We're not miserable. a fake reality show in that way. We don't do that. Like I, I may exaggerate things that mm-hmm. are really there, but she, she is. Um, you know, first, she's from South Africa, right? Right. So she goes, "I want." You know, it's very common. I wanted a, a vintage American muscle car, but I've never driven one. Right. And that happens all the time to people. And they're, they're not what you think they are. They're very beautiful, but they're very hard to drive. Mm-hmm. So we had these three cars for her to drive. Um, and she requested a manual transmission. And, and I called her. I said, do you really like manual transmission? She says, yeah, I know how to drive properly. And I said, all right, well, how can we challenge this girl? Why don't we take her out to Drift 101 at Willow Springs and give her a lesson in drifting? Mm-hmm. You know, which isn't that hard for maybe you and me, but... For for her, she's never for done the listener, anything like that. When when Spike said you, he was pointing to Jeff. Yeah, <laughs> not well, me. I don't know. Do you know how to drift? <laughs> no, no, you don't know how to drift, right? Um, but by the way, nor do I. But um, we brought her out there, and she was terrified. Yeah, you know, when she looked, it, she looked more frightened as a passenger in the car than when she was driving. As she should be. That's where I'm frightened most of the time. <laughs> But she, you know, rose to the occasion, you know, put the car in gear and started drifting and flying around. And, you know, I get really excited when I see that. Like, I was really happy. I was like, God, I really showed her a fun experience. Mm. And she confronted her, you know, fear about it. And how cool is she for for learning that? So, you know, a lot of the shows go that way. They're really fun to open people's eyes, at least for me it is, to this world of cars that I know. And, uh, you know, spend a couple days with some really nice folks. Are you ever or usually um surprised by their choices i'm wrong 80 percent of the time really so yeah. you'll yeah i was wrong with the genevieve morton one i thought she was going to go for the camaro the most the corvette the, camaro. the most expensive one not the, the camaro the a third. lot of people thought the corvette right but it was a tank to drive it was really hard to drive um and the camaro, and the camaro was the one loved. that was like the green one right right no that's not the i thought she was going to go for the bronze color mm-hmm. one 
That was a Corvette. Yes, that's what I thought. I, you know, and I'm sitting next to folks and, and people on the show all the time, and I'm always wrong. I would say 80% of the time. I don't know why that is, but in the first season, first two seasons, we would take bets, and there would be a lot of money changing hands over which <laughs> cars. And I thought for sure this is really unfair because I'm going to win every time, but right. I lost a lot. Huh. A lot. What do you make of that? Like, do you. People are telling me the truth. <laughs> oh, maybe, yeah. <laughs> you know, I can, I'm a little better at it now, but um, no, I don't know. This third season, it was tough again. It was really hard. Um, we also have a big show coming up um, July 29th with Seinfeld in it. Oh, he cool. sold off uh, 16, 18 cars from his collection. We followed him to Amelia. And uh, that's a, you know, it's kind of a special. There's no real buyer in the episode. But um, though I'm helping someone bid on one of the cars. Mm-hmm. But what I do have in that episode is Jerry the day after, you know, at breakfast, you know, with questions like, are you broke? (laughs) Is that why you're selling all your cars? And how did you pick these 18 cars? And, you know, why this venue in here? And it's a really insightful, fun interview where Jerry just coughs it all up. Cool. And he is broke. He's he's done. Is that why he signed him? That's why he sold him. Yeah. How many cars do you have? Nine or ten. Somewhere in there. You don't know. Um. You're going to make me count in the air. It's not a lot. I feel like nine or t- <laughs> it's not a lot for someone who has more than nine or ten. <laughs> but when you say cars, like collector cars, like things that I'm collecting, because that, that's I a see. different number. I have an old 58 Speedster that I've owned for many years that I bought because I loved it and I got it for next to nothing. A pair of GT3s, these these race cars that I like that are, you can put on the street. Uh, 68 911L Trans Am Factory Lightweight Porsche race car, one of five. Raced by Dickie Smothers, who you may know, the mm-hmm. Smothers Brothers. I actually literally know Dickie Smothers. You do? Mm-hmm. Wow. How do you know Well, him? not anymore, but He my... lives in Sarasota, Florida right now, right? I... So I... My parents were friends with the Smothers Brothers. Wow. So I met them when I was like six. That is so cool. Yeah. Um, but they have... Wait. We have pictures of my older brothers in these tiny little motorized cars. Right. That... I think Dickie owned. Is that that's not what you're talking Smothers about? Smothers brother the Smothers brothers started racing. They okay. had Smothers Brothers racing. Gotcha. And it was born out of uh their they were having trouble, I guess, at the CBS show with the Smothers Brothers hour and they weren't letting him into the writer's room, so they'd be hanging out in the parking lot with cars and suddenly they got into cars and then they were out at the racetrack and Dickie said he found the people there so accepting, unlike in show business. <laughs> And when he said, you know, sheepishly, I'd love to race, they said, let us help you, you know, which I find to still be true in this car community. Every, it's very inclusive and really nice. And they just dove in. And they, they have a, I think their logo is a big bass drum with, you know, rain, pastel rainbow colors. It uh-huh. says Smothers Brothers Racing. I, I didn't even know all this till I bought the car. So I cold called them. I, I think I got the number from a friend. And I said, you don't know me. And, you know, I was on the phone for two hours with Dickie's mm-hmm. mothers. You know, mostly we talked about the car a little bit, but mostly talking about uh, CBS and the Smothers Brothers Hour and their new writer, Steve Martin, who didn't talk to anybody <laughs> and sat out front. And he was the weird guy on the staff. You know, fascinating conversation for me, you know, because, you know, I, 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 I'd just been parked in front of it as a kid and couldn't believe I was talking to him. All right. So, um, you know. Uh, what we're talking about collection Mo- a motorcycle 66 triumph bonneville volkswagen german police car b- police beetle <laughs> from 1979 some weird stuff an old land rover and a ferrari in there 72 ferrari well that's a nice what's your next car gonna be it's a very good question um i've got the ferrari up for sale at bruce canopy's place in northern california and and i'm thinking about 
um, getting back into or getting into an eighties nine eleven. Just a simple like eighty seven to eighty nine nine eleven. I think they're undervalued right now. They made a lot of them, and I've never owned one. I'm looking for a new experience. That's the first car I ever wanted. I had modest tastes as yeah? a child. <laughs> what What was the first car? A nine eleven. Really? Mm-hmm, a That's yellow nine eleven. I just thought it was so pretty. I always thought that was the asshole car. So I never liked that stuff. I, you know, I grew up with American Muscle cars, and you know, again, this judgmental Massachusetts attitude. Right. The guy who drives that car has a problem. But David Letterman opened my eyes to it. He, he put me behind the wheel of one of his, and I went, "Oh, this is awesome. <laughs> this is beautiful." Did you ever own one? Did you oh no, one? no, no. I'm not. I'm a. Um, I'm not in that um, level of car. <laughs> my first one cost five thousand five hundred dollars. Had Maybe I am 280,000 miles on it. Wow. It was sepia brown, baby poo brown, <laughs> with a brown interior. Uh-huh. And I was in love with it. Totally in love with it. Loved it. So um, to pick up on something that you just said, it sounds like you have had to shake a lot of the maybe narrow judgmental worldview that you had mm-hmm. because it was keeping you away from things that you might genuinely yes. like. But I try to turn it on for comedy because without that, without anger and being judgmental, it's hard to be funny a lot. Mm-hmm. So it actually impacted my writing a That's lot. That's interesting. Because, uh, you know, most of... I mean, I don't know. Just the way I write, a lot of the ideas I would get would be on the subway when I'm just bored and I'm just thinking of stuff. And if I'm in a healthier, happier space, there'd be less inspiration around. Right. So I'm constantly in conflict with that. You know, sometimes I just stay away and try to get in that old headspace to try to generate uh, ideas, mm-hmm. you know, if that makes sense. It does. Let's take um, some questions people sent in on Twitter. But first, I want to say, if you're going to buy something on Amazon, which you are, because they have everything, click through the banner on my website, alisonrosen.com. It doesn't cost you anything extra, but it helps out the show. Thank you guys so much for your Amazon support. Also, if you like what you're hearing, subscribe, itunes.com slash Rosen. Okay. When we ask, they send them in, they're wondering how you so thanks so much for answering these questions from our fans. Chris in the Gorge says, ask him if he allows anyone to eat or drink in any of his cars. Also, his favorite drives in the U.S. Oh, good. Good question. I've been trying to be better in this space. I drink coffee in my, in my cars and my kids. I've started letting them uh, eat on long road trips in them, but, but. It has. It can't be anything soupy or yogurty, <laughs> but the chip crumbs, crummy things are I, I allow. And what's my what? My favorite what? Favorite drives. In my the favorite US. drive is PCH to Malibu. That's the one I do on the weekend, and that chills me out. I'll be, I'll be doing it tomorrow morning. I'm gonna blast out there. Uh, Ulysses Ulysses Atkins says, "Did you ever regret a car hookup?" Um, does that mean a car I found for someone or a car I bought? I'm imagining a car you found for someone. Um, it's hard to regret that. Yeah, it's not I've, like true matchmaking. I've regretted a car that I bought, um, that I didn't drive. I, I once bought a 73 911S, silver and black, something I thought I always wanted. And when I got in it, on that first drive, I hated it and it never got better after that. So that was, that was a mistake. Always drive these cars before you buy them. How quickly did you sell it? Um, you know, <laughs> eight or nine months later, I really <laughs> took my time with it, but I sold it to Bobby Rahal of all people. The famous race car driver mm. from Ray Hall, Letterman Racing. He, I think he still has it. I should have kept it because it's worth a fortune now. Jason Long says, what car should Allison drive? Oh, well, we just heard that. 
that's the car I want you in. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> a new 911. <laughs> the newest one. 991.2 right. would be great. Well, I actually probably do need, this is a real unsexy choice though, I probably do need to change cars with a baby on the way. This so is I'll the need very, room very common mistake. To change cars with a baby on the way? Yep. Okay, good. Tell me why, because I'd rather not. Change cars uh, 12 months after the baby's born. Okay. You're, you're going to be fine. What are you driving? Um, It's a Mercedes C250. Okay. Can you put a baby seat in it? I'm sure I can. You're fine. You're fine. You're, this thing is a little portable football. You're totally fine. I have this idea that there's all this crap you have to lug around with a Guess kid. Guess what? Trunk? Yes. You'll put it in the trunk. You'll be fine. One baby's fine. Okay. It's a very common thing. I hear it a lot. The dad's like, I've got to get this. We've got yeah. to Yeah. No, my husband's we- like, we've got to get an SUV. It's part of that nesting thing, but yeah. just don't let it invade the car space. And if In general, if you have a car that works with right. little baby hooks, you're fine. Like My wife has been getting by with a Prius. Our eight and six, two kids with all the crap. She's she's the school bus driver, right? In, mm-hmm. a, in her second Prius. It's not a big car. Okay. Right? There's no minivans. You don't need a minivan. That's that's marketing. They're lying to you. You don't need that. I have to admit, so before I had this car, I had a Honda. And before that, I had, I had always had Hondas. Right. Um, And all of a sudden, I was driving so much and I hated my second Honda. I loved my first Honda. I hated my second Honda. Um, it was a pain to drive. It's like, I really want to drive a car that is fun to drive. Mm-hmm. And I had driven a Mercedes, not, I don't know. It was something that had a ton of horsepower. Mm-hmm. And it was always like, if, whenever I can afford a car, this is the car I'm going to go get. Um, it was years ago that I drove it though, when I was very poor. And I just loved it though. I wish I could, at one point I knew both what the car was and what the horsepower was. And I I imagine it was probably a V8. Um, Sounds like an AMG model. It wasn't. It wasn't though. It was just so <clears> much <throat> nicer than it was mm-hmm. like a Mercedes. It wasn't a CLA. Did they make a CLX five fifty so. or CRX? C- CLA five fifty. Right. It wasn't a CLA because it was. Um, it was convertible and it was two door. It was something like CLA though. But anyway, I think I think there was a CLK. Five hundred convertible. Mm-hmm. That's what it was. That's what it was. Um, yeah, they don't make them anymore. But so anyway, CPK I five hundred is quite <laughs> <laughs> California Pizza Kitchen model. That's right. Yeah, I would get it in barbecue chicken that. with mm, the barbecue chicken option. Yummy. So anyway, I ended up. Um, sorry, this is indulgent. This is just now me using you as my car matchmaker. No, I like it. I I'm ended listening. up as you noticed. I'm I'm wrapped. Okay, I ended up getting this Mercedes <laughs> C two fifty, which yep. is um, it's a V4, I think, and it doesn't have a lot of horsepower, but it has Mm -hmm. fuel injection, so it's supposed to feel like it has a lot of horsepower. But anyway, it definitely is a better driving experience than my Honda. However, I don't, it's not peppy like I, peppy-er, but it's not this like peppy, oh my God, I have so much power, I love driving, feeling that I wanted. Where did I go wrong? (laughs) (laughs) Sounds like you bought the wrong car. I think I did. (laughs) Right. Well, yeah. I mean, here, it's, here, it's a real, it's a good car. It's fairly new-ish, so look, I don't have any problems. People love their car. You, they don't have to rationalize. They'll just go, "I love my car." Yes, I want that. Okay, <laughs> rent it, borrow it before you buy it. Yeah, that's if smart. If you can, that's I and, test drove, and, but that wasn't enough. No, don't go to the dealership. Stay away, and unless it's a good dealership and you have a connection there, they're going to let you spend some real time in this car. Right. You know, try to just rent it for a day or two if you can spend the money and just be alone with it, mm. and then you'll know. And it, because it's really, this, you know, I find it's actually the third day that I know. 
The first one is you're either anxious, you don't understand the car, or you're too in love with it, and then you calm down, and then you really see what it is. Right. Yeah, that's the best way to not make a mistake. Yeah, I think I was... Well, first of all, I was there was a bunch of different cars I was looking at. But you went into a dealership. You know, you made some classic mistakes. Okay, you tell me. You didn't go to the dealership with the with the car you knew you were going to buy. You no. were just like, I need a car. <laughs> You're dead in any dealership, yeah. not just Mercedes, anyone. You've done no research. So, I mean, you're supposed to research your car. You're supposed to know what you're going to buy, number one. Mm. Know what that car costs, number two, by doing your research online and figuring it out. Right. And then give yourself a little bit of a, you know, if I don't make a deal in 25, 30 minutes, I am out of here because I'm going to get ripped off. Mm-hmm. If this guy's slowing me down, you know, I was pretty clear with you, buddy. Um, and I, I think the one other funny one is you uh, no sympathy at all. You have no sympathy for the salesman. If he starts talking about his divorce or his boss <laughs> and, you know, I'd like to help you out and re- any of that, you said no sympathy, I'm out. You just leave. So if in 30 minutes you have not made significant right. progress, walk out. Do not look back. Don't worry. There'll be plenty of cars for you to buy. Yeah. So, you know, you walked in and you didn't know. And now they're just, now they're going to sell you something. What is a fun lot of power or feels like it has a lot of power peppy car though? Uh, well, there are lots of those. <laughs> I mean, I'm driving <laughs> my new GT3. There's lots of peppy cars. And, you know, I always look at horsepower, you know, wh- what I'm dealing with, you know, and, and weight. That's mm-hmm. the quickest way to have a look at it, right? Okay. You know? Yeah, I think I got like, ca- I got sort of bamboozled by this like, well, it's got, am I, is it correct? Is it fuel injection? That's what makes it feel? No. No, there's something like this, else. You know, this that's an entry level Mercedes, so yes. it's not going to have the most powerful. Right. Engine. But they're, because I considered the the one up, the C350 or whatever, but they're like, no, you can, you know, there's a reason, this will feel like it has all the power. Right. I but might have said, you know, why not go look at a Lexus? Why don't we look at something that doesn't have the word Mercedes on it? Yeah. Because I think if you're going to buy a Mercedes, you're buying a big honking Mercedes. That's what I would be doing. Rather, you mean than... you're buying the higher end one? Yeah, I know. This is like this yeah, could be like, anything. You know what I mean? You want to buy the higher end of maybe a lesser brand, and maybe you get something a lot better that moves right. a lot faster. You know, and then wait. I mean, at least that's that's what I used to do. So I'd buy, you know, I'd go to Volkswagen before I could afford Porsche. Do you know yeah, what I mean? I'd buy something there, or even go to Toyota and just get an old Forerunner and just use that, get a truck. But I was, you know, I, I always thought I'm gonna until I have the money for something that's really gonna throw me. I'm not going to really waste any money, mm-hmm. you know, on on a new car like that. Yeah. Smart. Yeah. Where were you a couple years ago? <laughs> and by the way, all of the new car experience generally kind of wears off after a while mm-hmm. anyway, so there's no real way to win. Yeah. There are a couple of special cars that it lasts for two years for me. This car but that mostly I... mostly they just right. get used to it. I should have just gone out and found the whatever it was. CLK, is that what you said? No, here's what you do. Because I that car, you I, gone I out named a, that car. I was in love with that you car. You should have gone back a few years to a pre-owned model to something big and fun that has the letters AMG in it. Yeah. That maybe isn't brand new. Right. That's what I would right. have done, I think. That's also what I should have done. Yeah. Let's do um, Just Me or Everyone. Sometimes I ponder on something I have thought or done. Is it just me? Okay, this is where people write in with things they think or do that they wonder, is it just me or is it everyone? So we weigh in on whether we also have these thoughts or do these things. Uh, J-Mos for A-Rose says, forget how amazing the body is and bitch as soon as the slightest thing goes wrong. Hashtag ingrown hair. Um, Yeah, I think that's 
that's how I am as well. Sometimes okay. it'll occur to me that it's amazing that my body just knows to breathe and how to have balance. <laughs> <laughs> I don't even know what, what that meant. What, what oh, did you explain to me? I, I'm confused. This person is saying that, that they bitch as soon as the slightest <laughs> thing goes wrong with their body and they forget oh. how amazing the body is. Oh, yeah. I don't do that. No. Which There's one? There's so much wrong with it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> At this point, I just roll. Okay. Yeah. Um, Ray Morgan says... I think my shins and my calves never really sweat, but I wash them anyway so they don't feel left out. Yeah, we used to talk about this on Seinfeld, that oh, how come we never wash our legs? And we never made it into a story, but um, yeah, I, I, I think I make a point of washing my legs once a month, <laughs> <laughs> where I actually wipe the legs down. Right. Right? My kids, you do kids all the time, because mm-hmm. the legs are the dirtiest part of their bodies. <laughs> But adults, I don't know. I don't think we need leg maintenance. Yeah. Maybe I'm wrong. Well, I wash my legs because I shave them. Mm-hmm. But yeah, if I didn't, pin- I don't think I would. Right. As a guy, right? I mean, what? I feel like <laughs> I pass over them because I think gravity is taking care of a lot of it in the shower. It's <laughs> right. all headed in that direction. Yes. So it's not as dirty as it could be if it was the top of my head. Uh, but yeah, it definitely gets neglected. But every now and then, I'll I'll make a pass down there and go, oh, that that's a lot whiter than when I started. <laughs> <laughs> or after you go hiking, you have the actual sock mark across the equator <laughs> where the dirt is. Mm-hmm. Old dirty legs. Uh, okay. Stephen Smith says, hey, Allison Rosen's your new best friend. What's worse at the gym? The guy who grunts and hisses or the guy that sings along to his music? Grunt wow. dude for me. This is good. Yeah, no, I, I work out a lot and I don't like grunt guy yeah, at all. Either. Grunt guy is a big pain in the ass. He's a show off. Yeah. And I make a point of training next to that person, lifting more weight and making <laughs> no sound. Just to show him how it's Just done? To show him how it's done. Yeah. That's an amateur mistake. Yeah. That usually goes away on its own, by the way. Alex says, can't trust anyone who likes Whoppers or any malt candies. I disagree. I'm fine with Whoppers. I'm fine <clears throat> with malt as a flavor. No, you're you're an idiot if you're eating Whoppers really? and McDonald's food. Yeah, after that. Oh no, doctor, no, no. Oh, what, what do you mean? He means Whoppers, the chocolate covered malt balls. No, those are great. <laughs> Thank you. Just Whoppers. What Whoppers, would... or he says Whoppers or any malt candies. Any malt candies? Yeah. No, those. He's are... got it out for malt. Those are cool. Yeah, I like those. I even like the old ones at the movie theater. Yeah. I thought we were talking to McDonald's here. No. No. I, I like a malted candy. I think it's yeah. an underrated flavor. Yeah, yeah me too. You, there's always one in every box of malted candy that's kind of gooey and chewy. Yeah. I really what? love that one. And I don't know how they get that just one in there, the collapsed one. Mm-hmm. It looks like it's got a black hole happening. <laughs> it's, it's, it's turning in on itself. But it sounds like you have strong feelings about Whoppers, the burger. Well, in general, if I'm going to have a treat, yeah, I'm gonna have. I'm not gonna have whoppers. What are you gonna have? I don't know something where I can recognize the ingredients on the <laughs> back of it, and they're not chemical names. Right. No butane. I don't want to eat butane. <laughs> Chicken says, "I don't mind showering in the same room I just took a dookie in, but hate it if I have to leave and come back in." Yeah, I feel like that's yeah because then you're hit. You're hit with the scent again. Yes, that's right. You, uh, you've ruined yourself. Yeah. You, you realize how awful you are. And how disgusting. And disgusting, yeah. No, I agree. Used to run faster says, all beverage indicators must be depressed on a to-go cup. I think that I will eventually just push all the little buttons. So, yeah. I can't read any of those. I don't know how to even use that stuff. It's a what is, is this a big gulp problem? 
where where think, is this happening or is this i think like a, a diet coke will have there's like a little diet button oh the little... so it's like a diet versus regular drink right. thing. i don't know i don't know what else yeah Maybe jenna here she drinks diet cokes all the time i push those in for fun but do they ever actually get used i in think service i think they do if do it's di- diet versus regular yes because oh, yes. i know i've had that like uh-oh which one is the diet yeah oh, that's it if you're getting five of them yeah they want to differentiate but if you're doing that by yourself, you've got a problem. Oh, okay. Yeah. You have Alzheimer's or something. What am I drinking? <laughs> oh, wait. The button. And that is just me. Wait. Hang on one second. I got to find another one. Oh, another fast food one. Mm-hmm. Um, Katie Shrum says ketchup is gross. Just gross. Ketchup is gross. Just, Just gross. gross. Yeah, I don't know if I. Agree. I don't think I agree with that. We did that one already. We did. Yeah. God damn it! All right, here's the. Tri- I love. I couldn't survive without ketchup. It's on everything. All right, have we done this one? <laughs> this is where I. I, fall I don't apart. remember them all, but that that was such a strong one that yeah. it was hard for me to forget. Okay, yeah. Sooner That's- Magic says. No greater joy than when a crazy driver flies by on freeway and I pull up right next to them in a traffic jam soon after. Have we done that one? That doesn't ring a bell. Okay, good. Then yes, I, I, I mean, no there are greater gr- joy. There's really? greater joys. No, but- the birth of children or winning the lottery. <laughs> no greater joy than that. I think the guy. I'm. I've been on both sides of that one. I'm really. The, yeah, she, she's just saying, or here she's just passing by, right? So essentially what she's saying is that I'm getting to the same place you are without the speeding, right? Yeah, but have you been the crazy driver? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> yeah, no, I'm in a fast car right now. Yeah. I'm sure I'll be doing that on the 10 on the way home. But what's what's your point? Yeah, the point is just, look, look it's you're all not bu- there. So I think when someone a- watches someone, well, this is interesting, when someone watches someone fly by, the assumption is you're there in a rush, when really it could just be that they're enjoying right. the car. Yeah, but uh, reorient. Reorient your thinking to this. No greater joy in not getting shot on an LA freeway. Don't look at anybody. <laughs> don't, <laughs> don't fuck with them with your car. I mean, that's what I'm thinking when I'm on an interstate, that if I do something untoward or even perceived as aggressive, I might get shot here. Because that happens weekly here, right? Yeah. So you change your joys. <laughs> exercise. Make exercise your greater joy. Is exercise your greatest joy, Spike? No. No. I like this. This is fun. Podcasting? I'm having fun podcasting. Yeah, yeah. I wouldn't say it's joy, but you wouldn't. No, but <laughs> I like it. It's a fu- it's it's a fun part of my day. And well, it's, thank uh, you. Yeah, thank you so much for coming on the show. No, I'm enjoying it. This it's was really fun. fun. Is it over already? Well, we've only gone on for eight hours. I know. With this is around the time I usually bring it to a close. <laughs> Let's do it. I know. Well, you're um, all, you're sending me into babysitting. Remember. Well, we have to take a photo after. And okay, sometimes, listen, sometimes the camera doesn't work or the flash doesn't go off. So who knows how long <laughs> that right, could take? Fantastic. So we'll I'm not really setting you loose yet. Thank you. Listeners, follow me on Twitter at Allison Rosen. Follow the show's Twitter feed at ARIYNBF. Um, if you would like to ask us for advice in our advice segment that we do, email us ARIYNBFshow at gmail.com and put advice in the subject line. Jeff, where can we find you? You can find me on Facebook and Twitter at Colonel Jeff Fox. And Spike, tell them where to find you and what they should. They should obviously look out for the episode of Car Matchmaker on July 29th. Yeah. But what else? We've got new episodes airing all summer all the way through to October. And I love social media. You can find me on Twitter, Facebook, 
uh, Instagram and even Snapchat, and I'm generally responsive on all of it. And you're Spike Ferriston And I'm everywhere. at Spike Ferriston everywhere. 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 Good luck spelling first, and I'm not going to tell you that. <laughs> <laughs> thank you again. Listeners, thank you for listening. I love you. Goodbye. Hey, do you know about the Allison Rosen Show? Time, but now we gotta go